Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Welcome back to our study of Brian Wolfmuller's Has American Christianity Failed? We're going to be looking today at the chapter on love. We're going to be narrowing in on the doctrine of vocation. So if that's of interest to you, you've come to the right place. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so we have begun the chapter on love, and if you recall from next week, or excuse me, from last week, I was saying, <laughs> I am a time traveler. Welcome to the class. I actually had next week on my mind because I was like, I've got to remember to tell them that we're not meeting next week. So there is no class next week. Thursday's canceled next week of necessity. So I, kind of a clumsy way to make that announcement to say the least, but that's where my mind was on next week. So last week we were talking about uh, love and how love within the context of American Christianity and the preaching you're likely to find in many churches spread throughout America, love is often understood as simply a nice word and thus a gospel word. And so you can hear a sermon that's all about love and how great it is to love God and how important it is to love your neighbor and love, 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 and you get out of the sermon and you haven't actually heard the gospel, even though you think you have. So that's where Wolfmuller begins with the reflection that if it's our love, then we're essentially talking about the law. The first three commandments, the first table of the law, have to do with loving God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, etc. And then the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And that's the second table of the law, or commandments uh, 4 through 10. The last seven commandments. So you can hear a sermon that feels really nice because the pastor was smiling and talking about love and family and picnics and puppy dogs and butterflies and walk out of there thinking, that was so uplifting, but you didn't hear the gospel. And Christ wasn't at the center of that love. Now, biblically speaking, it's very different. Biblically speaking, God is love. And the love of God is made manifest, is made known to us precisely in the giving of his son. This incredible selfless love on the part of the father that he takes something infinitely more precious to himself, his only begotten son, and gives him for the life of the world. And the son in obedience to the father and in love for us gives his own life for us, for the life of the world. And in this is love. And then we love because he first loved us. And so our love takes on that shape and that form. Obedience to God and uh, love, self-sacrifice for neighbor. And all of this predicated upon God's love for us in Christ Jesus. That free gift of salvation he gives. 
and then we receive that and are justified, our response would be our sanctification, our response in love. Okay, so that gives us kind of where Wolfmuller has taken us. If it's God's love for us, that's gospel. That is indeed comforting, encouraging, strengthening, brings with it the Holy Spirit that cleanses our hearts, renews in us a right spirit. And as long as we're talking about our love flowing from that and being, we're still within the biblical paradigm. But if we sort of cut that whole first part of the theology out and just talk about our love and love nebulously, love generically, we're going to go awry. We're going to go awry because we're going to think that's the gospel when it's not. And then taken to an extreme, we might also go awry because we're going to think, well, love, if it's not connected with the love of God in giving his son, then what is that love? Maybe that love is defined by whatever I think love is. And so now you've got a pernicious intrusion of if, it's, if our love is cut off from the love of God in Christ Jesus given to us and revealed to us, then you've got all kinds of room for, me, for these, you know, these kinds of stupid statements we get in our culture, like love is love. Well, I love your truck. Does that mean I can just have it? <laughs> apparently not. So apparently love isn't love. Apparently there are some boundaries here after all, right? Okay, so that's, by way of synopsis, where we have been. And I would simply point out on page 170, we have kind of a rehash. If you look right in the middle, I'm not exactly sure how to steer you there. Right on the, in the middle of the page, and then on the right-hand side of the page, you're going to see these Latin words, incurvatus in se, and that would be translated probably into English as profoundly selfish. <laughs> it's the self curved in on itself. Sometimes this gets translated as egoism or egotism, and it's this idea of I'm the center of the universe. And that is really, since the fall into sin, the way we love is I love if there's something that serves me. So I love a God who serves me, or I love a person who serves me. That's about as far as it goes. And we're going to contrast that then with the selfless love of God giving his only begotten son, the selfless love of the son, giving himself for us. And we're going to, through this lens, I think this is actually a a beautiful way through which you can perceive the different ways that love is used in our culture. There's this self-sacrificing love that is outward-oriented and always ordered toward the good of neighbor versus this self-serving love, which is selfish, exploitative, not looking out for the greater good, but just looking out for, hey, whatever makes you happy. But we all know if you spend a couple minutes thinking about it, whatever makes you happy is not, for instance, a good parenting strategy, nor is whatever makes you happy a good societal strategy. We have to acknowledge that this, there are many behaviors that actually aren't good for you, even if you want to do them. 
And so it's very, very essential and loving to tell people no. <laughs> Or this is disordered. This is going to hurt you in the long run. And those kinds of statements. On page 171, Wolfmuller, under the heading When Sin Becomes a Good Work, he takes us through just a very brief tour of the medieval monks and nuns, the religious orders, and how there became a class of these super spiritual good works, not just keeping the Ten Commandments, but doing all these other things. And from that vantage point, many of the monks and nuns looked down their noses at regular everyday people engaging in the world, being married, raising kids, etc., etc. There was this monasticism, this idea of super special good works. And Wolfmuller critiques American Christianity as falling into a neo-monasticism. You have to have your own super special good works. And some of this has to do just with a broader separ separation. For, for example, on page 171, that kind of third full paragraph, he talks about You know, live, wanting to live in a Christian ghetto with Christian music, Christian books, Christian movies, Christian friends, Christian coffee shops, Christian plumbers, etc. Then what comes out of that is this idea that there are exclusively good Christian works. There's a kind of logic to it. It's just bad logic. It's just doesn't. You know, it's not grounded. But it goes. It kind of goes like this. Like, well, if the pagans are out there raising their families, and I'm a Christian now, then raising my family can't be a good or God pleasing work. Um, or anything that a secular person can do in the workplace or in their home, I, as a Christian, have to be doing that and more. In fact, if I'm, if I'm doing those other things that all the pagans are doing, I'm only being a pagan, so I have to do something super Christian, super spiritual, in order to actually demonstrate to myself and to the world that I'm Christian. So this, now you get this kind of neo-monasticism. Now you've got to have your ministry. You know, are you running a prayer ministry or a coffee ministry? Or a, you know, are you leading a Bible study in your home? And Look, I mean, doing those things, there's nothing wrong with those things. But the fact that you have to call it a ministry and that you think that this is a different class of work, this is now a Christian work as opposed to a worldly work, that's where the confusion and the bad thinking sinks in. Does that make sense? Okay. So what's the alternative to that? The alternative to that is the biblical doctrine of vocation. And that is what Wolfmuller introduces on page 172. And it's where we're going to spend uh, our first chunk of time here today, the doctrine of vocation. Let's just start with the first full paragraph on 172. Wolfmuller writes, the scriptures locate our good works first in our homes and then with our neighbors with whom we live and work. This is the doctrine of vocation. Our vocation is our calling in life. Vocation is much more than our job. Our vocations are the places where the Lord has stationed us to love and serve our neighbor. Our vocations then bind us to our neighbor in various and different ways, and our vocations define the way our love looks. 
All right. So in America, we have vocational schools where you would go and learn to do maybe plumbing or work as electrician or something like this. That's not what we mean when we, as Christians, use the language of vocation. We mean vocatio, a calling to God, of God, where He puts you in an office or station of life that has well-defined biblical roles. If we were to think as properly as possible about this, we might even say, in terms of vocation proper, there are really six chief vocations. And these are actually three pairs. So husband and wife, parents and children, and then what the Bible calls masters and slaves, but would just as easily be translated as managers and managed, (laughs) bosses and employees. The same principles in general apply. Now, where do we get these six from? Well, from the Bible. So, if you were to go to Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verse 22 through chapter 6, verse 9, you would see exactly these six offices laid out, directions given by the apostle to wives, husbands, children, parents, masters, slaves. And there are other texts like it. Colossians 3.18 through 4.1 is another where you'll see these pairs. Now, scattered all throughout 1 Timothy, you're going to see admonitions regarding these pairs. And then also you're going to see similar teaching, just not as systematic, not as well organized in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through uh, chapter 3, verse 7. And also in Titus chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. So there's a lot of biblical data here. But especially if you were to focus in on the Ephesians and the Colossians, the first two I mentioned, you're really talking about what come to be known as the household code text. It's where the Bible lays out the household code. And all we're doing with the language, when we use the language of vocation as Lutherans, is we're saying, God calls you to these roles and offices. It also makes a lot of existential sense. You know, here you are in the world, what are you immediately? A child. You have parents. What's your duty to those people called your parents? So, yeah, to honor, obey, etc., And your parents, in turn, have a duty to you. And so you can see how this works. All right, what happens when, as the scriptures say, uh, a man grows old and leaves his father and mother and cleaves on to his wife and the two become one flesh? Now you have husband and wife. So the vocations of God expand. And then on account of the fall, there's got to be some sort of economy in place. So you've got managers and managed. And in many cases in our, in our lives today here in 21st century America, there's usually some balance, unless you're like the, the CEO or something like this. You usually have people that you're responsible to and maybe some people who are responsible to you as well. Uh, that's fine. Then both of those simply apply to you. 
you have to take in both. All right, does that make sense in terms of where we're getting this from the scriptures, what our scriptural grounding is? And then we're using this language of vocatio as a shorthand for this whole theology, so we don't have to do this five-minute explanation every time we talk about it. So um, vocation, that is your calling to these stations in life. This can help clarify for us, too, the way that uh, we use it in America and how that's different from our theological use. Because in America, you might say, well, your vocation is, a, uh, as, is as an architect or an electrician or a plumber or a scientist or whatever the case may be. Where that gets confusing theologically is it's not as though God called you to be this one thing. You could just as easily be something Else, God doesn't call you to a specific career path, to a specific job. That's not the way it works. He does indeed call you to, um, he calls males in particular, to provide for their families, to earn bread for their families by the sweat of their brow. And then there's a certain amount of freedom that he gives uh, for, the, for the man to choose in what way he's going to earn that bread. But we don't want to bind vocation down at that lower level. Otherwise, we end up thinking like this. I really hate being an attorney, but God's called me to this vocation, so I have to stay in it. No, that's a misunderstanding of what vocation is. It's up the chain. God has called you to perform duties as a husband, as a father, to provide bread for your family, uh, you may choose whatever is within your freedom to choose. And that still all remains your vocation, your calling. Does that make sense? All right. Let's pause to see if you have any questions or comments on that. Because we've just laid the definitional groundwork for vocation. We've seen where it comes from in Scripture. Um, is pastor a calling then? Or Yeah, so that's a great, that's a great question. In this respect... The calling of pastor itself, like any other way in which you earn your living, would fall under the master-slave category. That's, it's nothing special in that regard, which is actually a kind of special thing because it means, in the, in, it means you don't have to be a pastor to be doing the really important work that God really loves. You see, and you don't have to be a Christian to be doing the ministry different stuff, the special Christian works, the neo-monasticism, to have God look down and be pleased with you. The doctrine of vocation is so comforting and so beautiful because it means a little girl sitting in her house when mom says, tie your shoes, and she goes and does it. I suppose the first miracle is being able to find both of them. But once she does, then she ties them, that's just as pleasing as a pastor who preaches a faithful sermon on Sunday morning. God doesn't look and go, oh, well, he's a pastor, so, ooh. Yeah. <laughs> We're all ants and grasshoppers to God. So he looks and says, here's a man in, in, on Sunday morning performing his vocation faithfully. I'm pleased. Here's a little girl performing her vocation, obedience to her parents, faithfully, I'm pleased. You see? And so vocation is this beautiful frame thing because it doesn't mean you have to go out and do super spiritual works. It doesn't mean that, well, you know, there's going to be a special, a special uh, 
elevator for clergy. You know, everybody else's elevator in heaven only goes up to floor 20, but the clergy get the special elevator that goes up another eight floors. No, there's nothing like that. And it's beautiful, and it's freeing, and it's wonderful. So God calls us to these specific offices and roles, and then he instructs us according to the Ten Commandments how we're to, and and the rest of Scripture, I don't want to short shrift that, um, how we're to conduct ourselves in those callings, those vocations. Did that help clarify? All right, very good. I see a hand over here. Sorry to make you run. Uh, your comment on uh, monasteries and monks, how they might look down on regular people. Uh, interesting, there's a monastery out in the desert uh, between, oh, out near, it's in the Mojave. At any rate, they make little clay tap. Uh, things that you hang on your wall kind of like that that stuff and it's a silent monastery so they not only are kind of looking and it's very strange when you're there they're kind of looking down it but they don't talk they don't talk to each other they don't talk to their customers they don't talk to anybody but you're welcome to go visit and but that's especially intimidating when they're not talking to you so uh (laughs) if anybody wants to run out there uh it's pretty easy to find. Yeah, Luther spent a lot of time as a monk, of course. And his critique is, you know, it's a lot easier not to sin when you don't have to hear anybody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he's critical. He goes, they go out there for this harder life, and in fact, it's an easier life. Yeah. That's his critique. I have a little bit more of a soft spot in my heart for those folks, particularly now in the modern period. I think it's a little different than it was in the medieval period. But in the medieval period, there was really almost this spiritual classism where if you went to a monastery or a cloister and you were living this way, I mean, there are even monks and nuns who write, we don't know if married people can be saved. That's the kind of ethos. If you just have that going on, you can then understand a lot of why Luther says what he says. And Yeah. Thank you for that. Please. Yes. What about someone who says, well, I'm being called to lead a Bible study. It's outside the church. Yeah. Or I want to do, I'm called to do a prayer group in my neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah. How does that fit in? So I would, I would, I I would think a simple change in language would really clarify a lot theologically. I want to lead a Bible study in my home. I want to have a prayer group. Part of this, I I feel called or I'm being called, is a desire to make ourselves more important than we actually are. And it just doesn't stand the test when you go, okay, I'm, I'm called to do this. Well, what do you mean by that? Did God speak directly to you? Uh, no, I just want to. Well, okay, is this a good desire or not? Yeah, it's a good desire. Okay, then do it. Uh, you want to do it. And if you want to say that, look, that's not of my flesh. My flesh is antithetical to the things of God, so it's clearly of the Spirit. I, I think we've got no problem with that, with giving credit where credit is due. But that's a different thing than kind of deifying what we want by saying, God called me to do this, or God laid this on my heart, or the other kind of jargon we have. I, as Christians, we ought to just be simple, humble children and say, I want to do this. God, please bless it. And I think that that's great. So anyway, there's my response to that. Yeah. I just wanted to share that this is so comforting 
to be released from what the world tells you that if you want to help your neighbor, you need to organize a triathlon and raise a lot of money and achieve and get your bucket list and start a foundation and all this stuff where the Bible says, just live your life. Just, you know, so it's like, wow. Yeah. What a relief. And, and it's so fantastic. I mean, this is punctuated by other biblical texts. The one I, my mind always goes to is, if you remember, it's not strictly speaking vocation. It's a secondary reflection on vocation or the nature of vocation. But there are, the one text in particular is, do you remember when they're all sitting outside the temple and Jesus sees the widow who gives her might? Now, everyone else has given large sums of money. It's a big production. It's doing a lot of clanking in the receptacle. And she comes up just quiet and puts it in and walks away, and that's it, right? Um, You look puzzled. Am I doing it right? Did I? Yeah. (laughs) Did I mess some part of it? Okay. (laughs) I just, I hoped I wasn't having a moment here where I was doing it wrong. Um, So the... uh, so then Jesus calls his disciples' attention to it and says, she's given more than all the others. She's given everything she has. That's, a, that's an element of vocation, too, because it's not the big showy stuff. I, I think that even the way we look at it is probably vastly different than the way God looks at it. Sometimes we even look at fellow Christians and we go, well, that guy started a church, and now there's 500 people there. And I give credit where credit's due, but that's a big, ostentatious thing. It's interesting that Christ never directs his disciples' attention or our, or our attention to big, ostentatious things, but rather to little, quiet, hidden things that only God sees and only God knows. Now, I think that this is a beautiful thing in terms of vocation because the other way that America kind of ruins us is we go, well, we're so pragmatic in our thinking. And so we go, well, this doesn't amount to anything. So what? How about the fact that God sees it and it pleases him? You don't think that is amounting to anything? That the almighty, infinite God, maker of all things, who transcends us all, infinitely speaking, is actually pleased because you changed a diaper or did the dishes or took out the trash or disciplined your child when you didn't want to. That is the beauty of vocation, too, is just realizing that God is watching, God cares, God rewards, even something so small as giving a cup of cold water in his name. And these are, and it's in God's hands to judge what this is. So you don't have to look at your life and say, I accomplished nothing. I mean, that might be the most asinine thing any of us could ever say. I mean, even if it's from a worldly perspective, it's true. You know, nonetheless, from God's perspective, you might have the most glorious and faithful life of anyone who's lived in your generation. So there's this beautiful dynamic, too, of, of you're allowed to retreat from the world's definition of what is successful and what is pragmatic and what matters. And you can say, how about just pleasing God? Doesn't that matter? Isn't that wonderful? And that's what he gives us to do in our vocation. So another kind of way of looking and thinking at that. Please. Just a quick follow-up. The 
it gets tangled in my mind about the vocation versus calling versus purpose, you know, and then the world tells you you need to figure out your purpose. Why are you here? What are your skills? What are your abilities? How do we, you know, do we just say, okay, it's God's rightly ordered world and the life we're in is our purpose, but should we actively seek out I don't know. I, how do you rightly think about all yeah, that Yeah, I don't like to reconcile it really at all. I mean, while some of the world stuff may be helpful in a left-hand kingdom, like how to get along and navigate through the world, like that's okay. I, I just think that the... I think that the way the world thinks the categories the world uses are more misleading than helpful. So, like, you've got to figure out your purpose. Who says you have a purpose? I mean, isn't that a little limiting? <laughs> I think you've got many more than a purpose. There is no a purpose to your life. I mean, if you want a purpose or a meaning to your life, his name's Jesus. He's the logos, the meaning become flesh. And in a very profound theological and philosophical sense, there is no meaning apart from him. And you only find your true and proper meaning in him. But that's not the way the world's thinking. You know, the world's thinking in the same idiotic way the world thinks we all have a soulmate somewhere out there and you got to find he or she. Um, the world thinks you have this purpose out there um, and you've got to discover said purpose. Both are equally idiotic and foreign to the scriptures, foreign to wisdom. So I... Be, and I may well be conditioned based on the fact that I've lived in the 20th and 21st century. I'm kind of bitter towards all this. I mean, I think in a, I think in a helpful way. <laughs> Is I like I like to be just really minimalistic and and biblicistic in my approach to these questions. What does that mean? That that means that. Oh, maybe better to frame it this way. One of the things that American Christianity does is inverts this idea of free will. Okay? What do I mean by that? American Christianity says, hey, you've got free will to turn to God and accept him with your whole heart and pledge yourself to him. And that act of will constitutes your salvation. You can and should exercise your will in that way. And then American evangelicalism goes okay, but where am I supposed to go to college? What am I supposed to study? Who am I supposed to marry? What's my career path? At this given fork in the road, am I supposed to leave this job and go get another or stay at this job? And so on. All of a sudden they say, I'm not free to make any decision. I have to discern the will of God. This is a complete inversion of reality and of what the Bible tells us is the case. (coughs) You have no freedom in things above. You have no freedom to choose God. Remember what Jesus says to his disciples? You did not choose me. I chose you. No one comes to me except the one to whom the Father has revealed me, to the one that my Father has called to me. Right. These kinds of statements. We have, we have no ability in that respect. So that's where we're bound. And then when it comes down to these questions of where do I go to college, what do I study, who do I marry, what do I do at this fork in the road in my career or life, 
The, the biblical answer is, you're free. Trust God and go. Now, you can, you can take biblical counsel from your parents and your pastor and other authorities and other people in your life that you trust. And when they look at you and say, you know, Rhody, you're only about 6'1". You only weigh about, you know, 185, 190. Uh, you probably shouldn't pursue the NFL. <laughs> but my mom told me I could be anything I wanted when I grew up. <laughs> Yeah, that's not going to... Okay, so what's, what's going on there is you're just taking... It's, this is wisdom. This is stewardship. This is guidance of, okay, these are the gifts, talents, and abilities that God has given you. Let's use them. I mean, in the same way, if, if a parent sees their kiddo is like really sharp at math, they don't say, you know, I think that you should aspire toward being a greeter at Walmart. That's a misuse of the stewardship of the gifts God has given. I mean, no knock on that. As a uh, okay, so the point being that we we're left free in these things below us, and that's so scary to us because we don't actually trust that God will back our play. That we have to say, no, God has a secret, super secret will that I have to discover, and if I don't discover it, I'm going to get nuked. Meanwhile, I'm free to decide for Jesus. All right, so that's inverted. So. Take all that, flip all that upside down, take all that, wash it out with baptismal water, and you're left with this, just this beautiful, wonderful freedom. And so I also don't like all this language of God put it on my heart, God called me, God led me, um, this, God, God revealed to me my purpose, etc., etc. That's just so common and, and so out there. Because it, it, it just hasn't, again, what we're trying to do is we're trying to say that God has this narrow will Right? Should I lead a Bible study or not? God told me I should. Where in the Bible does God do things like this? And the answer, the answer is nowhere. So, I think there's this beautiful freedom and faithfulness we're called to live into where it's like, is this thing I want to do sinful? No. Is it, uh, is it within the freedoms God's given me? Yeah. Um, is, it, is it wise in terms of stewardship and other just simple... Hu- yeah. Go for it. Or not. God's got you. It's going to be okay. And there is no singular path. There is no singular purpose. Only in retrospect can you kind of say these things. Um, but then you get into a chicken and egg and a kind of philosophical uh, loop there. So that all is above us, and we need to let God be God. But yeah, this is a beautiful, blessed freedom. So I, I just like fleshing out my language, saying, I want to do this, I want to do that, I thought that would be a good idea. I don't mind the language of God closed those doors, God opened doors, because sometimes you very distinctly see that. But what's wrong with owning this desire? I think where this gets the most obvious and pernicious is actually in the pastoral vocation. And, other, um, and here I'm using vocation fluidly. I'm not using it in the narrow, tight way. Um, because pastors will say things like, like, I really felt the pull and draw of God in my heart that led me to seminary or led me to become a pastor. How do you know that was God? And it's a big epistemological problem. That is how you know. And, how, how are, and that sets the stage for whatever you really, really, really want must be from who? God. Ugh. 
So why can't we just speak the way the scriptures speak and say, he who desires the office of bishop, he who desires the office of pastor, desires a good thing. You're to be commended for that desire to want to be a pastor, but you should probably own it. That'd be a good thing. And then if, in fact, God wants you to be a pastor, he's going to call you through a church. This is Acts type stuff. It's the Holy Spirit who made you overseer. So he's going to call you through a church to serve in a given and particular place. That's how you'll know when God has opened that door and wants you to be a pastor is when you have a call document that says, come be our pastor. Such a thing can only come from the Holy Spirit. But until then, why can't we just own our own feelings and emotions? A lot of this has to do in the crasser forms with deifying our feelings and thoughts and emotions and then psychologically protecting and armoring ourselves with this idea of, hey, if this all goes south, it was God's idea, not mine. <laughs> Why can't we just own things? So that's where I'm coming from. I, you know, and, and maybe, maybe there's, a, there's a little more gray here than I'm presenting, but when have I ever been balanced in my presentations of anything? So, yeah. Please. Um. Looking at this vocation from the lens of a member of this church, uh, yeah. you know, we have a lot of jobs that are needed to volunteer, mm-hmm. uh, Sunday school, superintendent, yeah. uh, etc. Yeah. In that context, when we are asked to perform a certain function, yeah. uh, is it proper for us to say, uh, I, I will go and pray about that? Or? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, when it comes to things that the church is calling you or asking you to do, the we don't need to immediately say that this is like a divine call the way the office of the holy ministry works. It's just a different category. I mean, this is true even within the LCMS where we call our teachers called workers. We do that for tax purposes, not for theological purposes. And then over time, we've gotten confused about that, which serves us right. There, we're really only, there's really only one office, to one capital O office to which one is capital C called. That's all you find in the scriptures. You don't find anything else. Okay? And then there, the church can create offices as it sees fit and the church can call people into those offices but that's a those are small o offices they're created by the church not by Christ and it's a small c calling because it's done by human members of the church not by Christ through his holy spirit through a formal call process so even something like teachers in the church professors in the church all the way down to an individual congregation's officers, a president, a head of the elders, someone sitting on this committee or that, these are all of a different nature. The technical term in Latin is de jure humano, of human origin, as opposed to de jure divino, of divine origin. And so, does that mean they're unimportant? No, they're of the utmost importance. And so, when the church is asking you to do something, if it's a small office like sitting on a volunteer uh, committee or if it's a large office like being a professor at an institution or um, being an elementary school teacher, being a president of the congregation, these are, these are um, serious and honorable callings that are taking place. We just don't need to get confused about them. And you are allowed to say no. Um, it's, not a, it's not a sin to say no. 
Well, you know, statistically, doesn't it seem that 20% of the people do 80% of the work? Mm -hmm. And that means that, you know, I know when we joined here 10 years ago, uh, I, I seem to recall the responsibility was said that financially we are to give to help the church. I forget whether there was an indication that we are to join in to various programs mm -hmm. and participate in that. It seems like that needs to be encouraged too or Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that that's that's equally as important. I mean, these are just stewardship questions and they're questions of hey, if God, if you if you look and kind of circling back to our text, if you look at the vocational landscape that you inhabit and you go you know, this is fairly well in hand, then that's precisely where if the church comes and asks you, hey, would you be willing to serve in this particular capacity? I'm thinking more of like congregational offices now. Um, that's where you should really be inclined as a matter of stewardship to say, you know what, I've got a certain freedom here that I bet, you know, so-and-so with, with her seven kids and her husband who's working 60 hours, they don't have, right? And there's this beautiful kind of cyclical nature of how that works over a generation or two where, you know, you're real busy vocationally, somebody else is free and they're taking care of it. They're really busy, somebody else is free and taking care of it. And so that's really the only way the community works. I, I don't want to go too far on this, Barry, but at the root of all of this is kind of a consumerism, too, that inv has invaded the church, which is I sit in the pew, I watch and receive um, if I don't like it, I critique. If I like it, I leave and come back next Sunday. Oh, you want me to do something? Uh, when, I go to, when I go to Best Buy, they don't ask me to work for an hour. <laughs> right? <laughs> so uh, part of this is the consumeristic mentality and just kind of flushing that out and, and regaining that familial mentality of, hey, we're all a body, we're all members, we're all a family. We're all members, and we're going to serve each other as best we can. Yeah, yeah. So thanks for bringing that up. Or, okay, I see, I see a couple hands. Uh, maybe, yeah, Janet and then Chris, whatever's easiest geographically for you there, Barry. Back to pastors. I'm just thinking we're studying American sure. evangelicalism. Yes, right. And there's a, a lot of evangelical churches where the one who's the pastor has just decided, well, this is something I want to do. Mm -hmm. And there's not a lot of formal training, say, at a seminary or whatever. They just want to start a church, and they do, and they grow. Yeah. And they get, you know, bigger and bigger. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean... Yeah, what, what, you, really, what you really have here is a novelty. You have a novelty in, in the late Western world where... Past, where, where individual Christians with an entrepreneurial spirit just say, I'm going to start this, I'm going to lead this, I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to make whoever I want to be a pastor. This is all completely alien to the historic church. That's, that kind of thing like would get you burned at the stake <laughs> a couple hundred years ago. Um, why? Because it's the, it's the activity of cult leaders and cults. It's not the activity of the Holy Christian Church. The fact that it grows, the way that Walther looks at this, Walther was the founder of the, uh, of, um, the LCMS and representative of, of many of our thoughts on this. And he just says, the reason why these, why these things grow is because they don't have any resistance from the devil. 
He's all for it. And I'm not saying that God doesn't still have his way and do good things wherever God's word is present, even if it's in a completely disordered thing, God's word is still going to bless. So I'm not trying to assert that like everybody who goes to one of those churches is lost or something. It's not like that. But if you look at what many of the mega churches do in these kind of, hey, I'm just going to decide to be the pastor here, what these churches do, it's, it's really shocking and horrifying because most of their growth comes from other congregations. And then like a spiritual meat grinder, you're at, I think the last statistic I saw, and it was a while ago, is that your, your average stay at Saddleback is four and a half years. And then where do you go after that? Nowhere. Nowhere. You're done. You, you did it. You had, you had the celebrity pastor. You had the gigantic campus with everything your heart. You had the worship menu where you can go to whatever tent you want. You had your latte. You had everything catered toward the customer's experience. And meh, it didn't work for you. Why on earth would you ever go to a church where, you know, you're required to bow your head, kneel, be reverent, submit yourself, do all these uncomfortable things like a liturgy and hymns and listening to a substantive sermon, you're out. These things function on a macro level as great big spiritual meat grinders that just are constantly spitting people out the back. And for every new disciple they make of an unbeliever, that same thing is generally happening there as well. So, that's kind of the, the underhanded re- statistical reality of some of what's going on, too. So, why, again, how would, how would God look at that? I mean, how human beings look at that is like, wow, that's glossy and impressive. That's got to be the Holy Spirit. Look at all the thousands of people pouring in there. That's got to be the Holy Spirit. On what basis? On zero basis. In fact, when you dig into, is this done in the way that God has done things for 2,000 years? The answer is no. So you ought to, at bare minimum, be suspicious. Please. Um, Thinking of vocation, um, you've heard the saying, it's not what you do, but how you do it. Um, My grandparents would say, or um, which one of them said it? I mean, my grandpa said, uh, if if all you are is a ditch digger, make sure that you ditch the dig the ditch as best you can and so you know that's I think part of what we hear as generally um, described as like the Protestant work ethic and so I'm I'm wondering how much of the what's called the Protestant work ethic comes from a Lutheran uh, focus on vocation could you speak about that yeah probably a significant amount of it because that those two things are hand in hand And here, too, I think you can see that vocation and these stations in life in the technical sense, so husband, wife, parents, children, um, employer, employee, they're not limited to Christians. They're across the board. Everybody, Everybody has vocations, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you know it or not. This is where we can see some, what we would call civil righteousness. If you see a pagan who's a really faithful ditch digger and a really good husband and father, it's not as though you look at those things and say, um, oh, well, that doesn't matter. No, it's extremely valuable. You can see that, for example, I mean, if you go to a surgeon, you you don't say, hey, are you a Christian? 
you say, are you good at what you do? <laughs> Because it just matters that they're faithful in their vocation. And this, this gives a kind of civil righteousness. Now, is that a righteousness that avails before God? No, not in any proper sense. We could see Isaiah like even your good deeds are as filthy rags, this kind of thing. So none of our vocations like avail before God for justification. But, and, and then you could also, in this kind of line of thinking, whatever is done apart from faith is not a good work, this kind of logic from Paul. There he's talking in a spiritual sense, not denying that there's left-hand kingdom righteousness and, and um, people doing the right thing in the world. Uh, it's just saying that if it doesn't come from faith, it's ultimately self-serving and dead ends there. So we as Christians are simply called to live out these same vocations as everyone else, but to do so as worship to the Father and in thanksgiving for what he's given us in his Son. And it takes, then, then it is of faith. It is good fruit. It is pleasing to him, even in the spiritual sense, not in the justification sense, but in the sanctification sense that he loves to see his children grow and progress and mature, um, just as parents love to see the same in their earthly children. So, yeah, that, and that Protestant work ethic, um, I think, uh, has in part to do with, uh, has some to do with Lutheran doctrine and understanding of vocation and that God is pleased with what you're doing. There's much more to it than that, of course, but yeah. Was there anything else? Okay, let's go just a little further with what short time we have left. Okay, so the, I, I just want to draw your attention very quickly to an important line on page 172. Under the, under the large type, the doctrine of vocation, we're going to go to the second full paragraph. And it's just this opening line. In each of these various vocations, now Wolfmuller has defined vocation uh, much more nebulously and generally wide sense rather than narrow sense. In each of these various vocations, my love has a different shape. And that's a really important concept. It, and it can flesh out why it is that a statement like love is love is idiocy because love isn't just like warm tender feelings love is having a duty towards someone and that duty towards someone takes on different shape and different form I even though I'm called to love everyone in the congregation men and women I'm not called to love them the way I love my wife. That would be very disordered, you see. So we can say, okay, love takes on the shape of a husband in loving his wife and wife in loving her husband. And by the way, those loves are defined differently. They're two different shapes. They're not completely symmetrical. Likewise, children love their parents by honoring and obeying them. Parents love their children by teaching them the fear of the Lord and disciplining them in accordance with his word. That's the shape of love. Okay? So that's one of the ways that you can start to look at your vocation. It's like, what is my duty toward this person? Do I have a calling to serve this person. In a very general sense, we're called to love all people, of course, but it takes on a shape. Is this person my neighbor? Is this person a member of my congregation? Is this person a member of my family? All of those are likely to change the shape of love. So it's an important way to think. Um, to this end, uh, I think bottom of 172, top of 173, 
Wolf Mueller gives a really poignant example of this, or several. Our vocations make what would otherwise be a sin into a good work. Consider these examples. A doctor does all sorts of things that would in most situations be sinful. Examining here and there, uncovering people's bodies, cutting people open, and giving out all sorts of drugs. (laughs) If anyone but a doctor did these things, he or she would go to jail. A judge sends people to jail, even sentences them to be killed. If anyone else did this, it would be a terrible sin. But for a judge, this is a good work. Soldiers and policemen act violently in their vocation, which is for them a good work. For a couple on their wedding day, what is a sin in the morning is a good work that evening. This list could go on. Parents disciplining their children, a city council member making a law, the taxman collecting money, the coach yelling at his team, the friend speaking a harsh word. All of these things are normally sins, but are made into good works by the unique bonds of vocation. So this is just an examination of how love takes on vocational shape. And that apart from vocation or calling, it's wrong. By the way, that's one of the things that the Lord laments in his work are those prophets that um, run even though they weren't sent and speak even though the Lord never spoke to them. And that has bearing on this thing too of like, okay, so a pastor acting like a pastor who's not a pastor is, pro- is properly sinning and has put himself into a sinful role and a sinful... Now, God may still, because God's God may still use evil for his good purposes and use his word to call men to faith. But that doesn't mean that when, when the self-made pastor stands before God that everything is going to go swimmingly. He's going to have to be answerable for, what he, for running without being sent and speaking without being spoken to, etc., all right, so that, let's see if there's anything else we want to touch on. Um, yeah, over on 174, the third full paragraph there, and we're skipping around a bit, but he says, so the question, what is my station in life according to the Ten Commandments? That's this idea of looking at yourself vocationally and laying the Ten Commandments over the top of that, what's required of you. This not only tells me what I ought to do today, but it also teaches me what sins I need to confess. Right. So, just realizing that I don't live my life as just this... I, I think this gets at kind of the Gnosticism and kind of the idiocy of the way we think. We think like, I'm, I'm nothing. I'm whatever I want to be. I don't have any relationship to anyone or anything unless I choose... Which is immediately betrayed by the fact that you're born... Right? So you are something concretely, even to exist. You are a child. You have a relationship to parents and other authorities. Okay, so, so that might be kind of at the deepest level here. And then as we build out from that, um, we're seeing ourselves as immediately relational beings that have a duty toward God. And thus, as we fail in those duties, we have plenty to confess. Down at the uh, bottom of 174, you can see it in big writing, this masks of God, which in Latin always sounds strange. I think it's like, 
yeah, like lar larvae dei or something like that, which makes you sound like an insect. Um, but this, uh, this idea of masks of God, okay, so this is easiest to understand via the fourth commandment and why it is that the fourth commandment even precedes the fifth, sixth, and seventh commandments. It's the foundational commandment because your parents are the masks of God. They're the means through which God is caring for you as a baby. So if left on your own, you'd starve and die in your own filth. But they're changing your diaper, feeding you, sheltering you, comforting you, giving you everything you need. They're operating as the masks of God. And so that's a unique way to look at vocation. And um, Wolf Mueller does a miniature treatment here. I won't go into detail. So as we conduct ourselves in our vocations, we're acting as the mask, the mask of God. Every once in a while, you get some poignant, creative piece on this. You know, where's God? Why isn't he responding to, let's say, poverty? Or where, why isn't he responding towards violence? Or why isn't he... Re- and ultimately, the point is, God is. He's sent you to handle these things, <laughs> to stand against these things, to deal with these things. God is a God who works through means, through people, and through offices and vocations. And so it is, in fact, divine work that we're called to do. That theology stretches all the way back to Genesis and Eden. We just don't have time to do it. Over on the top of 175, Wolfmuller then takes us to this idea. It's familiar to you if you've been here at this congregation for any amount of time. The family, the state, and the church are the most important realms in which we live according to our vocations. The old theologians called these three realms family, state, and church. The three estates. So that's one way to look at it, the three estates. And from there you can see the two kingdoms, the church and the, and the state, and those two different kingdoms um, you know, are constituted differently. The church is the kingdom of the word, and the state is the kingdom of the sword. So there would be a difference in how, they're, how they govern all right, so then, yeah, these three estates give you the give you kind of the structure of creation that God has put in place. I'll just commend this section to you. So down at 175, let's just tie it together. I know we're a couple minutes over. I apologize. Let me just tie it together with this last statement. So down at the bottom of 175, the last full paragraph, short, Indeed, vocation is God's gift to us. American Christianity misses the comfort of the doctrine of vocation in grasping for ultra-spiritual good works. The plain and simple works that the Lord has given us are neglected. All right. Next week, or excuse me, not next week. Next week we're off. Two weeks. We're going to take a look at worship and what the essence of worship is. And this is going to tie together in the sense that we're called to serve our neighbors and our Lord himself comes to serve us. And that's going to be one of the key distinctions between Christian worship in the proper sense and all the religions of the world and the way they worship. And then if we zoom our lens into just Christendom, we're going to see two different kinds of worship. We're going to see worship that is about man giving to God, man serving God, or we're going to see what we Lutherans hold on the basis of the scriptures and the history of the church, that worship is truly about God 
giving to us, God's serving us. Thus we call it divine service. The divine one comes into our midst and serves us. So this is what we'll look at two weeks from now. The Lord be with you.